Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today, Dennis O'Hare. You may have seen him in Take Me Out. He won a Tony as Best Featured Actor for that. Assassins, nomination for Tony, and now Sweet Charity on Broadway. Dennis, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Sweet Charity is such a fun show, and your character is so interesting. <laughs> how, how would you describe your own character in the show? Well, he, you know, he is um, an accountant. Oscar. Oscar Lindquist, um, a good Swede or Norwegian. And uh, he's an accountant uh, who is looking to better himself. So he engages in classes at the Y, and uh, he's on his way to a class called um, Free Thought in Action. And, you know, he meets up with this girl in an elevator, and the elevator gets stuck, and they end up um, getting involved. Uh, she, of course, being Charity uh, Hope Charity, Valentine. Exactly, Christina Applegate. And, uh, but, you know, who he is is he's a kind of a normal, everyday guy, um, but he's also kind of a, an oddly enough an archetype. He's somebody who's trying to break out of who he is. And um, in a lot of ways, that's what Charity is doing. She's stuck in her world, and she's trying to break out of her world. So they're, in an odd way, soulmates, two people who are trying to be something else. And in her case, um, she succeeds, and he doesn't. And, I, and one of the reasons I love this part and why I was attracted to the part is because here is a person who fails, someone who actually tries, comes up against a challenge, and at the very, very end can't do it, you know, is scared and, and backs away. And I find that a really compelling idea. It's certainly and, not the conventional Broadway leading man no. character. No, and, 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 you know, people talk about arcs and characters and, you know, oh, he changes at the end. Well, here's a guy who doesn't. He tries to change and he doesn't. And I, I, how many – that actually is a much more recognizable experience in a lot of people's lives than the, uh, than the triumph. Uh, we'd love to all have triumphs, but the reality is we often fail in life. And – He's not a bad guy. He's a, he's, a, he's a lovely man. He's a nice man. But he ends up not being a very courageous man. And he seems to come very oh so close to it. Like he's right about there. Which is the heartbreaking thing, you know. And ultimately, it's not about him anyway. It's about charity. He, 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 the story's about her. And what's important in the story is that she changes, is that she doesn't fail, that in the end she has learned something. And what she's learned is that she can't keep repeating these relationships with men and allow them to treat her a certain way. And she stands up on her own two feet by the end. You've been involved in this production really since its inception, yeah. and we'll talk a little about the recent saga of Sweet Charity, <laughs> which everybody probably knows by this point in terms of Christina being injured. But you go back to even some earlier workshops yeah. of this, uh, and over the years, there were different people announced yeah. for this show. How many different charities have you either worked with or performed with at this I'm, point? I'm counting. You can't see this on radio. I'm counting. One, two, and he's using his fingers three, to count. Four, five. You know what? Um, five. Wow. Um, uh, I originally was um, slated to do a workshop with a director named Tim Sheeter, uh, a British director, and Marissa Tomei was set a sweet charity. And we worked for about a week and a half, maybe two weeks, and uh, a guy named Mark Dendy was a choreographer. And that didn't work out. And um, midway through that process, uh, Jane Krakowski came in. And then Jane and I did it. Uh, and Jane performed it for, I think, three times or twice for producers and various people, Cy and Neil Simon. And then that was the end of that. I mean, we, you know, we 
waited to see what happened, and what happened was that it, everything fell apart. And then, I think it was the following February, noises started happening again about this coming back, and now Walter Bobby, who had originally, he's been much longer than I have, originally slated to be in it, uh, to do it rather, came back as a director. And at that point, they asked me if I was interested, and I said yes. And and when would this have been? What year? 2004? February 2004. 2004, yeah. And as of yet, there was no charity. And so I kept my ear to the ground and kept waiting. And uh, I think it was about, I don't know, July, August, that I think they finally settled on Christina. Or maybe it was even later than that. It was sometime around there. And And the story I understand is Christina came in and wowed them. You know, she came in and she she earned the part. She danced and sang and acted. And they were all flabbergasted and said, yeah, you're it. I recall a very cold winter day in 2005, probably January or February, oh, here, yeah. here, here in New York. I think there's a little bit of snow in the air, and there was a, a press uh, preview, so to speak, right. of, the, uh, of a couple numbers from the show done in just dance tights and that kind of stuff um, at a dance uh, rehearsal hall here in New York at 11 o'clock in the morning, yeah. which is the god-awful yeah. time Off for Broadway people to be working on a cold day. And you and Christina Applegate did this scene in which you meet in the elevator. Right. They had just two right. flats suggesting an elevator. So right. we, with Magic Marker, had drawn <laughs> buttons on it, exactly. so we got the idea. Must have been about 100 press people there. <sighs> I have never seen the press so favorably react. They gave yeah. you guys a standing ovation at the end of that. It was so well, well done. This was before the show had done any previews anywhere. You were about to go to Minneapolis and yeah. Chicago and Boston. Yeah, that was a pretty phenomenal experience. Uh, uh, and, and and funnily enough, I, I, that that is a great reminder that you know theater doesn't have to be about the sets and the lights and the costumes. It, it is ultimately about the communication and it's about the story, and the story should be able to be played out in a room with flats. Uh, that's it's about story. And uh, that's a great lesson for me, too, to go back to and think about. Well, the scene that I'm describing is the one where you and she meet in the hall. You get in the same elevator. And it's the kind of the situation where what does the guy say to the pretty girl in the elevator when exactly. you're trapped? The elevator gets stuck. You're trapped. And Oscar is um, not the most suave of, uh, of gentlemen no. to, to wow a pretty blonde off her feet. No. <laughs> and no. the, way, the way you played it, just the two of you, it's like, you know, like you say, great theater doesn't have to have lights and sets and all that. It's such a well-written act scene it is neil simon you know, has to remember neil simon one of the great comic masterpieces well you mentioned you as you call it a masterpiece it is a show that some people looked at and said this is a show of its period yeah and throughout so the fact that there were these different workshops of a show which had already been proven to be very successful a number of years ago revived successfully in 86 what was going on in that workshop process, and given that you were part of it for so long, how much opportunity did you have to influence what was what was being done in terms of any tweaks or changes to the show? Uh, I think the the, the biggest reason uh, for our revival is that we are we're in the post Fosse age. You know, he's gone, so this was the first revival without Fosse, and that's not a small thing. He wasn't simply the choreographer. He was the mind behind everything. It was his idea in the first place, and he asked Neil Simon to come in later and write the book. So, uh, you know, a new vision. What is the vision of the show? And I don't know about the 86 revival because I didn't see it, but I know that our revival grappled with the timeliness of the end. The ending has always been a problem. Everyone's admitted it's a problem. No one was ever happy with the ending. And one version, you know, Ruth Buzzy came in as a fairy godmother and, you know, said, I'm your fairy godmother. It, you know, it, it, she got pushed in the lake at the beginning and at the end. 
she didn't really learn anything. It was a, it's a very problematic ending, and that was one of our big challenges and one of our big uh, goals was to fix the ending. And I don't, I didn't have much influence on anything, uh, but I did uh, have a little bit of input in the very very ending. And we talked about why does Oscar ultimately reject her, and the pat answer was she's been with too many men. But what I said was, it's not simply that. He's ashamed of her on some level. It can't simply be about, you know, he's got this weird thing about purity and virginity. That's something that nobody can relate to today this age. But the truth of the matter is, where are they going to go to live? How are they going to socially deal with the world? She's a dance hall hostess. He's an accountant. What happens at that first party when she sees one of her old clients who happens to work with Oscar? What happens when Oscar's mother says, so honey... Where, what do you do? Where did you go to college? What, you know, where, where's your family from? This is not a happy couple in terms of the future. And that's more germane than simply you slept with too many guys. It's also about what's our way into the future? Where do we live? Austin Pendleton came and saw the show and he said to me, you know, it's a great quote from Fiddler. A bird and a fish may fall in love. Where do they build their nest? So in this current version, the current revival, has the ending been changed from yes. the original? Yes, it has. Without giving away, what was that whole process about? Well, the ending has always been that Oscar is, it turns on her at the end, and mm-hmm. she is horrified that he's revealed an unkind aspect. And then she begs to come back into their relationship, and he basically says, basically, no, right. and walks away and leaves her there. In our version... Oscar turns on her. It's not as nasty because as Walter Bobby, our director, pointed out, this guy can't change. He can't be a different character at the end. He's the same man. Whatever seeds of that are in him have to always be there, and the way he enacts it has to be consistent. So he's obviously up against the wall, and he does it out of fear and out of his own sense of, of inadequacy. But it nevertheless is an ugly moment. She sees it. She's hurt. She turns away. Oscar says, what am I thinking? I want to be with you. And she says... No. No. I, I see it now. You, you, you're just like all the others, and it's not going to happen again. So she gets to make the decision. So he that, that, that was the big change. It's a, it's it's and it's a pretty decision, big change, yeah. Which from 1966, when the original show played, yeah. here we are close to four decades later. Yeah. It's much more current. The audience oftentimes reacts by applauding. Uh-huh. She has some pretty strong lines at the end. Uh, and they and they clearly like it, and uh, Wednesday matinees especially. <laughs> and and, and whose whose decision was it to make that change? Uh, Walter, uh, Neil Simon, and uh, Christina. And uh, was Christina. Cy still a part of that? Uh, Cy Coleman, of course, Cy, who passed away no. during this process. I, I know that they had a lot of talks before I was involved. All through the fall, obviously, Cy and Christina had worked in Cy and and Walter and Cy and Neil. Uh, I wasn't part of that because we hadn't started rehearsals yet. And Cy died on the 10th of December, and we started rehearsals on the 20th of December. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much he was involved in, in the in the book part of it anyway. But uh, but Cy was involved in a new song going was. into the show for you. Exactly. It's Can't. called Good Impression. And was that when did that come into the process? When, th- when it, did that get introduced? Because a new Cy Coleman song, it's always something – to be excited about, and yep. you were the person who got to introduce it. It was a song that already existed. Dorothy Fields had written the lyrics to it and Cy, and it existed for something else. And I'm really fuzzy in my history here, but I think it actually was part of the show originally and never used. But it's a trunk song, at any rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and Cy, it was Cy's idea uh, and Walter's. They both wanted Oscar to have something else to do. Um, and the joke was, you know, okay, the first time Oscar sings, he's trapped in an elevator. And the second time he sings, he's trapped in a Ferris wheel. Let's get this guy on his feet. Let's get him doing something else. And so this is set in the park, and I get to actually do a little version of an Oscar dance. And uh, it's not pretty, but it's a, it's a dance. And um, uh, I think this was done in the fall. Cy and Neil and Walter talked about this in the fall, and it was already in place. So by the time we came to rehearsals, this was already the idea. That's a song that unless you have actually seen Sweet Charity at the Al Hirschfeld Theater, you probably have not heard because this is the first time it's aired on the radio. The CD of Sweet Charity that we've been playing here at XM28 has been the 1966 version, but now we have the new one. That's why you're hearing it today for the first time. It will be in record stores on July 12th, available then. Dennis O'Hare sitting with us today, talking about Oscar Lindquist, his character in Sweet Charity, opposite Christina Applegate. Howard brought up uh, Christina's uh, foot injury problem. And then on the Tony Awards, she did such a parody of her own injury. <laughs> the, the story goes in, um, I guess it was in Minneapolis. Uh, no, Chicago. 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 Yeah. She uh, made her entrance where she enters from upstage left and walks across the stage and swings around a lamppost. Yep. And the way the lamppost is constructed, her foot slipped off and she broke a bone in her foot. It, yeah. It was... Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a beautiful set. It's a beautiful design. Uh, it's safe. It's not that it's not safe, but it's it's treacherous. And you know, and we as actors are asked to do things that sets aren't designed to do sometimes. And we're brave, and we do anything. And uh, Christina is really game, and so she'll do anything. And uh, I don't know how it developed, but she was standing on kind of the round part of the base of the lamppost, which is not exactly secure. And uh, she's wearing high heels, and they're slippery. And it was a process by which her foot slipped. And as it slipped, it bent. And as it bent, it broke. It was basically an accident <laughs> waiting to happen. Yeah, it was an accident. I mean, you know, it, God knows. You do these shows eight times a week, and you put a lot of demands on your body. Anything can happen. You just hope it doesn't. <laughs> but so, you've put aside you know, time to do this show, and suddenly the prospect of the show possibly not being there was very real yeah. during this. And so for you, what was going on? I mean, at a certain point, were you saying, up, oh, I got to call the agent, I got to start looking? I mean, it was on, it was off, Charlotte D'Amboise was in, then it wasn't happening. It was it was a pretty confusing time. It was a very confusing time. It was a very uh, uh, insecure time. Uh, it's a great cast. It's a great group of people. Uh, we like each other enormously, which helps good sense of humor everyone made jokes everyone got through it but underneath all that was a real anxiety and as we got into Boston we, we faced a, a terrible situation because now we had not divided loyalties but we had two charities we had one in the wings and one on stage and you know this is a very practical business you have to go with what's happening and we didn't know at that point how quickly Christina would heal we didn't get you know three to five weeks is not a good diagnosis for a show you can't say that's a two-week window of insecurity. <laughs> you have to know. Especially when you have an opening date already announced. It's April 21st. Uh, and and uh, as it turns out, on April 21st, Christina was on stage performing. But that would have been the opening night, and that's not when p- press comes. Press comes earlier. And her first performance in New York was April 18th. So, you know, had we stuck to the original opening, she would have only had three performances uh, before the actual opening, and that wouldn't have been enough. But for you in this process, it's interesting, despite the fact that you've got half a dozen Broadway credits, I noticed, unless I've made a mistake, that this was your first 
truly commercial production Absolutely. that you'd been part of. You had yeah. come out of shows that had begun in not-for-profits that made it to Broadway or were produced yeah. on Broadway by not-for-profits. This was a whole different animal yeah. for you. Absolutely. Was the pressure different? Was it a different experience? Obviously, this we're talking some about the accident, but let's just talk overall. Yeah. Was going into this kind of a production significantly different process for you than the process you've been a part of in not-for-profit theaters for decades? Yes. I mean, I, I, I come out of you know places like New York Theater Workshop where we'll do a three-hour and 45-minute play where half the audience leaves, and we don't care. Indeed, in some cases, you're quite happy. You're quite happy. That means we got to them or didn't get to them. But, it, you know, I, I, I do, I've done three plays with the public. Uh, I've worked in a lot of regional theater. Uh, I've worked at the Roundabout three times. Uh, I've worked at MTC. And I'm used to doing worthy works of art that aren't necessarily <laughs> selling tickets. Uh, and, and you didn't – but you also weren't in a multi-million dollar vehicle that – you know, looked like it might go off exactly. the rails. Exactly. It, it, it's an enormous amount of pressure. And um, I must say that I didn't feel it directly. You know, the people who did, Christina, quite honestly, is the person who, who has been superhuman through all this. Uh, all of the rest of us in the cast, however, had to deal with the prospect of not knowing what was going to happen to us and facing the prospect of not having a job. And also, the more psychological part of it was knowing we're doing really good work and knowing that we may not be able to show that work to New York. Nothing wrong with doing it in Minneapolis and Chicago and Boston, but we, our peers, uh, our careers are in New York. We want to be able to show what we've been working on in New York. We're proud of what we've been doing. We wanted this, Wayne's choreography to be shown. Wayne, Wayne has done a remarkable job of taking on the Bob Fosse uh, legend and recreating his own version of that. To not be able to show that to New York was a great blow, and... We were closed down in Boston. We were given notice, and we were told your jobs are over. And we were told that on a Friday, and we had to go through four more shows, two on Saturday and two on Sunday. That was really difficult. Thinking that Sunday would be the last performance. Absolutely. Not only that, knowing that it was the last performance, and also knowing that there were press headlines out there in Boston, things like charity goes sour, sweet charity not so sweet, charity tanks, charity Mm -hmm. awful stuff. Knowing that the audience had read all this stuff and going out there with people, not hostile, but certainly no longer as warm and fuzzy as they had been in the past couple of days watching our performances. But did you get that feeling up on stage with the people in the audience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Th- that the applause wasn't the same as it had been the day before, let's say? Well, I'll put it this way. At the beginning of the show, we, we were met with a lot of, a lot of you know, quizzicalness and, and, and uh, you know, questioning. And by the end, we had converted them. The one thing about this show that is extraordinary is that we turn every audience into an enthusiastic audience. It's it's the talent on that stage. It's Walter Bobby's direction. It's the story. It's Wayne. We convert every audience into an enthusiastic audience. It happened yesterday, a Wednesday matinee, and we thought, oh, geez, kind of quiet. By the end, they were literally screaming and cheering. It's It's weird. So even the people in Boston who had read these bad reviews – you were not able to convert them by the end of the show? We were. Oh, oh, we were so they, able they to. did by Absolutely. the end of the show. Absolutely. More receptive. Yeah. And Bruce um, Gilkus and um, um, Paul Wonker, Won- Wonterek, I'm destroying his name, from Broadway.com came up uh, that final weekend. A lot of people from New York came up because they wanted to see it. It was mm-hmm. historic. They wanted to see what they were going to miss. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and said it's a great show. I don't know why it's closing. So then this was Sunday. Yeah. When, when was the announcement then made that the show would be continued, that Christina had gotten Tuesday. involved? 
Tuesday. And, you know, the, 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 the really modern 21st century aspect of all this is that it all happened through the Internet. <laughs> People knew in New York that we were closing before we knew because <laughs> wow. of the Internet. Wow. My agent told me in his office that I had my job back before the producers contacted me because it was on the Internet. So he kind of went, oh, look, looks like you have a job. I was like, what? And he goes, well, it's called Sweet Charity. And I went, ha-ha. He said, no, it's right here on Broadway.com. Sweet Charity, back on. So it must be true if it's on so the it, Internet. So it's on Broadway.com. It must be true. Exactly. Well, the saga of Sweet Charity is certainly a remarkable one, but – You've had a very interesting transition. I touched on it before when I asked about the not-for-profit versus commercial. But it seems in fairly rapid order, you've gone from being solid, regional, (laughs) and off-Broadway working actor for decades to Broadway star, Tony Award winner, and indeed even a a musical go-to guy, which didn't (laughs) seem to be in the resume. No. How did that... Was that just a series of flukes, or did you consciously start looking to do different work? I would imagine Cabaret may have started that transition. Yeah. Um, I I have a very odd relationship with the musical form, uh, and uh, I, um, I did my last musical before Cabaret in 1982. And uh, I... Which was? <laughs> um, uh, piano Bar. It was a weird little play called Piano Bar. And before that, I had done Yeoman of the Guard, Gilbert and Sullivan, and I had done was in this, high You're school. still back out in Chicago? This or? is, this is in, at college in, in Chicago, Northwestern mm-hmm. University. And in high school, I did all the musicals. I did Man of La Mancha. I did um, Nicely Nicely and Guys and Dolls. I did Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ Superstar. I did Godspell twice. Um, uh, but and at Northwestern, a school with a good theater program. Right. So it's not that you were off at some small school no, and you no, were no. the only guy. I made a conscious choice when I was about 19 or 20 to not do musicals because I felt that I felt that I wanted to be a quote-unquote real actor. And in my school at that time, there was a really strong divide between musical theater actors and quote-unquote straight actors. And there was a, it was a very competitive world. And I fell in love with Chekhov. And wanted to only ever do Chekhov and Albi and, you know, um, Ennui and great humorless French plays. And uh, so I kind of – I went on that track. And it wasn't until 98 that I was seduced back into doing a musical. And uh, it was because Cabaret was dark and, and odd and the, the concept was edgy enough that I kind of, I kind of liked it. Uh, I, 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 Assassins was the same thing. I loved Assassins because of what it said and – and I guess I'm, I'm attracted to each individual piece, and I, I make my decision based on that, not based on a career move. Um, and that being said, and I said it in print before, I said it to Broadway.com, I said, you know, I'm not sure I will be doing a lot of musicals in the future because it's, it's not sort of where my, the, my, my passion is and where my, my, my greatest joy is. I love to act, and I'm not as happy singing <laughs> Cabaret and Assassins, yeah. both dark shows. Exactly. Sweet Charity, Confectionery Sugar, bright and pink and bouncy and all that. Except <sighs> a very dark ending. Well, which is why, which is what that's what attracted me to it. the uh, original <laughs> ending. But then it was rewritten. Our ending is pretty dark. Yeah, I think it's surprising. The audience the doesn't. Audience. The, the audience is 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 a little bit shocked at that ending. Uh-huh. You know, they don't get what they want. They assume we're going to get married, and because uh, the structure is that you think you're watching exactly, a standard exactly. musical comedy, it's going to have a standard musical yeah. comedy ending, which yeah. is everybody gets married and is happy. It's not even so much the you know the darkness of it is is that there is a um, 
I feel like I'm getting away with murder in this show uh, because Christina and I get to act in a more naturalistic mode, a realistic mode, which is not always the style in musicals. And I'm very happy to be allowed to do that. And not every musical will allow me to do that. And not every director will allow me to do that. So for me, it's very difficult to find somebody who will let me do what I want to do in that structure. And I also don't think they should necessarily. You know, uh, my style of acting may not work in, in everything, and therefore I shouldn't do it. Uh, I think there are certain directors who I wouldn't work with well in musical theater, and it's just as well that we don't we don't work together. So, <laughs> <laughs> will you talk about the work that you're you're closest to? And certainly, you got a lot of acclaim and awards for "Take Me Out," mm. the Richard Greenberg play. But I was fascinated to read a quote where you said you didn't think it was necessarily your best work. Uh, yeah, I don't. So I'm curious to hear about that. And then if Tony Awards were given for whatever work you've done, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave out the rule that it has to be on Broadway. What is, what is the work you're proudest of? Um, I'm very proud of a play I did called The Devils down at New York Theater Workshop. Uh, again, three hours and 45 minutes. Uh, I played an unlikable, um, mean-spirited... Um, unhappy anarchist named Peter, and I love that. Um, Are there many happy anarchists? Not anymore. <laughs> um, the Pullman riots got rid of them all. Um, but uh, I just love that work because I loved. Uh, I was a beautiful production. Garland Wright, who's now dead, uh, directed it. It was a beautiful production, a difficult story. And again, I like playing characters that aren't easily identifiable. And also, it's a great challenge for an actor to play somebody who's not likable. And this was a guy who wasn't likable, and he didn't care about being liked. And so, was, is it the yeah. fact that you played such a likable guy in Take Me Out that made you think maybe it wasn't your best work? No, not at all, not at all. I I, I love doing Take Me Out, and I was very proud of that work, and and I and I did feel it was. I, I felt it was, I think it's a great part. I think the speech that he gives is a great speech. Um, uh, it, it just in terms of what I look at is what challenges me and what's hardest for me. Um, that was not the thing that. I, it was hardest for me to achieve. Uh, Major Barbara, which I also did uh, at the roundabout, I'm prouder of that work precisely because it was more difficult to achieve because it was harder for me to get there. It's a bigger, you know, the role is monumental in a way, Dolly, in that. Um, Mason Marzak from Take Me Out is a beautifully written role, uh, and uh, I didn't feel like it, it was as challenging as some other parts have been. I guess my my conception of what my good work is is how far I have to come to achieve something or how difficult it is for me to achieve it. It's about your yeah. process, not the, not yeah. the and, audience you know, perception. And, and actors, you know, our perception is notoriously unreliable. You know, we, we come off and think we had awful shows and people think it's great and we come off beaming and people are like, what happened to you up there? <laughs> you were indulgent and awful. No, I was true. Speaking of dark characters, there's Charles Guteau, who you played in Assassins. Yeah. Uh, rather dark. Got your nomination for Tony. Yes. <laughs> uh, that was probably a fun character for you to interpret. That was a great character to interpret. I loved him. I really did love him. Uh, he, he was one of the nine, though, assassins or would-be assassins yeah. of presidents. Which one was, was he? He, you know, he killed Garfield. Killed Garfield. Yeah. Okay. A little odd. He shot him in July, and Garfield died in September. And there is uh, so there wasn't immediate gratification. Well, and there's some talk. There's a lot of uh, controversy about who killed Garfield, and a lot of people say it was the doctors who kept putting their fingers into the bullet wound, Mm -hmm. and you know infected it. So you know who actually killed him? It's hard to say, but he shot him. So Mm. you know he got hung. (laughs) 
<laughs> Should we play a song that you sing in Assassins? Absolutely. You're, you're on a couple different tracks in there. There's, there's, um, there's the song he sings when he's going to be hung called I'm Going to the Lordy. And the fascinating thing about that number is that Guiteau actually wrote the words. He actually composed his own death, and he had a script, and he had a speech, and he said to the hangman, don't hang me until I say this thing. I'll say, um, glory, God, go, and then pull the lever, and you can kill me, and I'll drop my manuscript, and that'll be my signal. So he literally stage managed his own death, wow. and as he did it, Charles Guiteau sang a song called I'm Going to the Lordy. Sondheim wrote the music, so he, and he changed the music, obviously. We don't know what, what, what the sound was to the hymn. But, um, yeah, Charles stage managed his own death. This is, and that's that number, and then there's a number called The Gun Song, which is a quartet that Booth and um, Choglosh and uh, Sarah Jane Moore sing with Gateau about the joy to having a gun. Which one shall we play? The Gun Song. From Sondheim's Assassins, The Gun Song, uh, talking with Dennis O'Hare. Dennis, who else was on that track with you? Who else do we hear singing? Becky Ann Baker played Sarah Jane Moore. Mm-hmm. James Barber played Leon Choglosh. And Michael Servers, Tony Award winner, mm-hmm. um, played John Wilkes Booth. We're sitting here about a year after Assassins yeah. having this conversation, and a lot has been said about the fact that Assassins was very well received, received awards, but did not have a sustained run. And now at a year's distance, do you have a sense of how you feel what happened about that show? Because there were those who said it was too dark and it was a political issue, and there are those who just said it wasn't selling the tickets or it was a marketing issue. What's your take on it with with the year's perspective? Uh, (laughs) I have no more clarity now than I had then, and my take is really mundane, and it was then, that I don't think anything grandly political happened. I, I think it was really mundane. I think it was that the ticket sales in August were weak. And the roundabout looked ahead and thought, we don't have a pot of money sitting around to afford losing weeks. There are, there are not-for-profit theater. They don't have uh, commercial pockets. So they couldn't have losses. And they decided to make a, um, you know, a responsible decision and say, look, let's close it while we're not losing money. I think it was that boring and that simple. And before we got on the air, you were talking about your own political leanings. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you think that show says uh, to an audience in this you know, it's funny. We, we did a lot of discussions during that show. And, you know, we, audience talkbacks are notoriously awful affairs. The questions are, what movies have you been in? How did you become an actor? You know, uh, and in this one, and usually, you know, like 50 people stay. And this one, out of the 900, 1,000 people, I would say 500 to 600 people stayed for those discussions. And people stayed and they were angry. And it was fascinating. Angry at the show? Angry at the show, angry at us, angry at the per- person next to them. Some people were standing and applauding. Other people were, like, looking at them and glaring with their arms folded. I don't know what assassins means. I honestly don't. We were asked that question again and again and again, and we all said, we have no idea what it means. The one thing I will say is that it's historical fact. No one's making this up. There is an interesting – it's an interesting historical notion that in this democracy, there have been many people who tried to kill our president. I don't know why. I don't know what it means. It's interesting. It's interesting that in America, this place where everyone gets a chance to enact their dream, some of those dreams are twisted. Um, I, I don't think anyone in our cast would support the actions of the assassins. I don't think anyone in our cast glorified them. 
my guy was insane. You know, he he had a rational basis for killing Garfield, which was to unite the Republican Party. Gateau was a Republican, wanted the Republican Party not to be split, felt that Garfield was a weak candidate and wanted him gone so that they could have a better candidate, Chester Arthur. Gateau also thought that he should be the ambassador to France and thought that Chester Arthur would, would do that. He also thought that God told him to do it. So who knows what the real reason was. John Wilkes Booth had a real political motive. Um, which was to defend the South, to stop Abraham Lincoln from destroying the South. He was still, I don't know, crazy to think that that was going to solve anything. Lee Harvey Oswald, was he sane? What did that achieve? Uh, it, it's, you know, Bick, Sam Bick, was a really bizarre guy who tried to fly a plane into the White House. Uh, personal grudge, John Hinckley, killing Reagan. So what we, 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 there was no thesis. It felt sort of like a, a series of meditations on different periods of Americana and asking us to think about the grand experiment that is America. The ending is what infuriated people the most, which was the song is everybody's got the right to be happy. And depending on how you think about it, it can either be a parody on the fact that we've come to a place in society where everybody claims their right to be happy to justify everything – or it could be, you know, live and let live taken to its furthest extreme. Many people, probably prior to seeing the show, just would have the impression that it tended to glorify these assassins or would-be assassins. When audiences left the show, do you think they would leave with that same impression? No. Two reasons. One is certainly while you watch the show, you know, you have very mixed emotions and you don't know what to feel. And Joe Mantello was very, very honest about that. Joe never gave the audience a satisfying theatrical button. For instance, at the end of Zangara's number, which was a brilliant number, Jeffrey Kuhn did an incredible job. He sings a song about how I saved Roosevelt and why he's why he's um, why he shot Roosevelt, and that number ends with him being electrocuted. So just at the musical button, when the audience is being told, you know, to applaud, we all know that instinct. Yum uh, bump. We hear this awful sound of electric chair, and this this actor arcs and gets electrocuted. So people, hands literally froze in midair, unable to applaud. And by the time that weird sound effect started, the show was moving on. The audience never got to release my number. It ends with this beautiful high note from Neil and this great crash, and it ends with the body coming down and, and the neck snapping. Mm-hmm. So just when the audience is going to applaud, they're shocked into horror by a falling body. Again and again and again, Joe would not allow the audience to applaud. So in a weird way, he was saying, don't applaud. There's nothing to applaud here. You know, he wasn't doing it for a political reason. He was doing it for a theatrical reason. But it certainly wasn't glorifying these people. Very interesting, both dramatic and psychological effect. Yeah. And the ending of the play, where we lost the audience, was when Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy. And they projected an image of the Zapruder film on, on Neil Patrick Harris's chest, every single person in the audience at that point turned against all of us because we were just telling them to look upon something they all knew about, viscerally remembered, and Kennedy is clearly a hero and something we can, we can relate to. So if we had them, we lost them <laughs> at that point. Was there any, ever any confusion with Neil Patrick Harris basically playing two different roles, the balladeer and the um, Lee Harvey Oswald character? No, the audience accepted him as Lee Harvey Oswald uh-huh. completely. Um, and, and in terms of what the effect was, I, I can't speak to that because I didn't watch it. So I, I'm curious about what people think if they saw it, what they thought the strengths versus the weaknesses. What was the point of that? And I'm, I'm not sure I have an answer for that. It, it's a, 
It's a show that doesn't yield easy answers. I think that's why people stayed for the audience discussion. They wanted to be told what to think, and they never went away satisfied. We didn't have the answer. Any audience discussions for Sweet Charity? We haven't had that many. We've had a few groups who've come in, and we've done it for them. And, um, you know, uh, it's not as controversial uh, a piece, but people are disturbed by the ending, and they want to know why he didn't marry her at the end. They, they definitely ask that. I go out to the, the Wednesday matinee crowds especially, and I get kind of pelted by ladies saying, Why didn't you marry her? We liked you until the <laughs> ending. Any temptation on the part of uh, Neil Simon or anybody else to kind of tinker with the ending now? No. I think I think they're happy with the ending. Once the I, show I think, is uh, running, it's, yeah. it's going to stay that way. But it's, it's a really difficult ending, and, and, and I think that this is a really good solution and one that everyone's happy with. Well, speaking of endings, yeah. Dennis O'Hare currently playing Oscar Lindquist in Sweet Charity on Broadway at the Al Hirschfeld Theater. Thank you so much for being with us today on Downstate Center. My pleasure. Center. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>